Blog Talk Radio. Gonna tell you a little bedtime tale, legend it will become. Burgers flying out the door, sail on. Two for one, no concern for the future. Living for today. Fast food bite on your way, lay it all to waste. The masses are afflicted now. Moo, mad cow, mad cow, mad cow, mad cow, line dance song. Hey, Sangai Nation, welcome to the show on another Friday afternoon. Sangai with you like normal. Some show notes if you are looking for some pro wrestling in the next couple of days. Tonight, WCWO at the Outlaw Arena in Indianapolis, Indiana. ALW in Cocoa, Florida. JCW in San Antonio, Texas, XCF in Jeffersonville, Indiana, and TAPW in Fairbury, Nebraska. Tomorrow night, Rogue Wrestling Attractions in Ocean Shores, Washington, where you can find me, Inclusion Pro Wrestling in Kelso, Washington, Wrestle Club in Boise, Idaho, NYWC in Farmingville, New York, CCW in Doral, Florida, WTF in Anderson, Indiana, IHP in Hudson, Wisconsin, Una de Lucha Libre in Seattle, Washington, SSW with their 33-year anniversary show in Mount Carmel, Tennessee, King of Sports Wrestling in Mount Pleasant, Texas, EPW in Odin, Indiana, DCW in Ogden, Utah, TAPW in Abilene, Kansas, JCW back in San Antonio, Texas tomorrow night, Black Label Pro in Berwyn, Illinois, and Swag Wrestling in Huntingdon, Tennessee tomorrow. Lots and lots of shows happening all over the country tomorrow. It's a big day for independent pro wrestling, so get out there if you happen to have a show near you and check out your local pro wrestling give us one second here our guest having a little bit of technical difficulty so let me go to a musical interlude and we will try to get this corrected
try to call our guest as we are having some technical issues. Let's see if we can get him. Are you there? We are here. Thank you so much, Mr. Wayne, for joining us. This is Sign Guy, and we are here on the show today. And I want to thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Yes, sir. Thank you. Well, normally our first question is a bit different, but today I'm going to ask it this way. You grew up as the son of a famous professional wrestler. At what point in your life did you realize that your father wrestled professionally? Um, I've known it ever since I was old enough to walk. <laughs> um, I went on the road with him as long as I can remember. Um, no matter if he was in Alabama or Florida or Tennessee or wherever he went, he always carried me with him. Now, your father, of course, was Buddy Wayne from the Tennessee and southeastern part of the country. And he, Correct. in addition to being a wrestler, eventually got into the office end of the business and was a booker and rented rings and did a lot of the behind-the-scenes work. Did you notice any changes as far as your father's professional life from what you could see being in the locker rooms and so forth when he made that transition? Um, yeah, there was a little bit of a difference. Um when he was like promoting a town or something and we'd go in the locker rooms and stuff, um, if we had a really, really, really good house, like, you know, packed, uh, he would normally complain and gripe and, and carry on about everything. Uh, if there wasn't nobody out there or he was going to lose money or whatever the case was, he always made jokes and, and tried to keep everybody in good spirits because it was, it was a bad house. So, between that and behind the scene things like keeping time at TV for the tapes and, and different things that he done, um, that was just part of what he did. He, he enjoyed doing every aspect that he he could do in the wrestling business. One of the big things about your dad's career is he had a pretty memorable feud in the Memphis territory, and it was the Waynes versus the Gilberts, and that sparked a second-generation type of feud when uh, Ken Wayne and Eddie Gilbert were old enough to join the fray. What did you think of having the family feud going in the Memphis days? Um, well, back in the day, um, it was just part of what – what I've seen. I mean, um, I didn't really, you know, hate Eddie or Tommy or Doug or anybody else. Um, when I was growing up, matter of fact, in Lexington, um, 
we sit up there on top of the bleachers at the high school. Uh, me and Doug did. And we were still kids. And, you know, I never I never really wanted to get in the business. Uh, Doug did. Of course, Eddie did quite naturally. My brother did. Uh, but it was one of them things where it was – I had to be careful what I did because it was such a personal issue uh, with the father-son type uh, program that they did. Uh, a lot of people would talk bad about my dad or something, and I would just ignore it because that's what I was told to do. Um, otherwise, I'd have been in fights all the time. So uh, sometimes, you know, other kids' parents and stuff would look at me. They knew who I was. They knew who my dad was. Um, they'd just give me, you know, a sympathy look or something like they feel sorry for me or, or whatever. Um, so, yeah, it, it was it was different. I mean, it was, you know, personal issues draw money, you know, and, and it did con- contribute to it. So, Well, you sort of brought this up a little bit, but in the era where your father wrestled and even mainly the era your brother wrestled, it could be dangerous being a wrestler that the fans didn't like. There were often times when riots would break out. Some wrestlers would be injured by fans, whether the fan threw something or sometimes they'd get close enough to uh, go at them with a knife or a bottle or something. That is true. uh, Were you ever scared for your father's well-being when you would go to shows like that, or was it something that you knew enough to know he would be able to protect himself? Um, There were times that he would get the crowd pretty riled up. Um, as far as I can remember, nobody ever came at him with a knife or anything. Because back then, the difference, like today's stuff that, that that you see, and back in the day, you know, when it, when his time was, uh, normally they had the local police escort to the ring and back to the dressing rooms. Um, they would rent, you know, like Mid South Coliseum, for instance, may have. 10 off-duty police officers in uniform that were contracted to take care and escort back and forth, so some things like that did not happen. Uh, I wasn't never really majorly concerned. Um, I have seen people, you know, jump in the ring and try to get him. Of course, you know, the referee and everybody else, you know, they cut him off, and um, or that or he just knocked the crap out of them and, and throw, you know, kick him back out of the ring. But it was one of them things where I was never really major, majorly concerned about my dad being injured by a fan. Um, we had cars scratched with keys, rocks thrown, um, you know, people threatening quite naturally, usually from a distance. <laughs> uh, but it was one of them things, yeah, it was a little scary sometimes. Um, I remember one time leaving the Mid-South Coliseum uh, during the Eddie Gilbert and, you know, father or son thing. Um, and there were people, there was probably 200 people standing there at the back gate that we had to drive through. Um, and they wouldn't move. They were throwing, you know, cups and rocks and cans and whatever they could get. And Daddy was backed up to the Coliseum, the great big roll-up door in the back. And... You know, the police were there, and, and they tried to get everybody back, and they told my dad, basically, just punch it and go. I mean, you know, and, of course, they were throwing rocks and stuff, and they, you know, hit windows and stuff, and we had to get those replaced. But 
um, that was probably about the scariest thing that I can ever remember. Wrestling, especially in the South and especially in the 70s and early 80s, usually saw a lot of blood during the course of a show. Lots of wrestlers would bleed fairly regularly in that era and in that part of the country. Did you ever worry when you would see your dad bleed, or was it something that you knew from being around it that it was just something that was going to happen and he'd be okay? Well, I knew um, when, you know, if he was bleeding really, really bad, um, I remember one time Tommy Rich, you know, was bleeding real bad and almost bled to death. Uh, but Daddy would never bleed that much. Uh, now, I've got, I do have a picture of him somewhere. He's got blonde hair, and he's standing outside the building, and he's got blood all over his face and hair and everything. But the I would always go back in the back and check on him and ask him if he was okay, and he would say, yes, son, I'm fine. You know, and, and that would ease my mind, and then I'd go back out in the crowd or wherever and sit with whoever it was I was with. But, uh, you know, there has been times that it was scary. You know, I mean, I didn't want to see my dad bleed quite naturally, but I knew that was part of the show and, and everything back in the day. And um, I wasn't really what, what I would say like a fan's perspective because um, I was, you know, I was on the road with him all the time. I heard all the conversations and, and all the different things that happened over the years. So, um, but I, I was concerned with him as far as his bleeding goes. And normally, nine nine out of ten, he was fine. You know, it's just you know he lost a little blood, no biggie. <laughs> now, sometimes sons would be recruited to help uh, patch up the dads if they were bleeding. I know a lot of. Sons, once they were old enough to know what they were doing, would tape up the wounds, would glue them shut, whatever the case may be. Did you ever get recruited to do that? Uh, yeah, I did help my dad sometimes because, like, he'd be trying to stand in the mirror and, and clean up and stuff and, and put the McGurk home or whatever it was he had at the time. Um, and try to help bandage him up and stuff. And sometimes, like his arm or something, he, he may have landed wrong or something. He just he had a hard time. So uh, I would, you know, try to help clean him up a little bit on occasion, and um, would put the bandaid on and stuff, and and usually put gauze up underneath it so it would, you know, soak and not actually run out from up under the bandaid. Um, and sometimes they'd even use uh, new skin or, or something like that, or Vaseline is real good for it. Um, and I'd put a little on it, and like with a Q-tip or something, and you know it would help help the clotting and help stop the bleeding. So yeah, I have, I have done it. <laughs> Don't like to, but I have. <laughs> and you mentioned Tommy Rich almost bleeding to death, and. I can definitely imagine that being the case a few times for Tommy Rich. But what would you say was the scariest injury that you witnessed, be it from your dad or from somebody else? Um, the scariest thing, <clears throat> I would have to say, I don't remember if it was Huntsville we went to or somewhere up in... in Chattanooga, I can't, I can't remember. Anyway, 
um, his car had overheated. We was going to the TV station for a taping. Um, and his radiator, his car over in, it ran hot. So he undone the radiator cap and exploded on him. And he had great big, I mean, huge blisters. I mean, all over his back and, and chest and, and everywhere. Um, and he still continued and made the shots and made the town and did TV and, and worked and done everything. But the antifreeze had soaked into his skin and made him sick. Uh, I remember coming back home several times. Um, he'd have to pull over and, and throw up and, you know, I mean, it, it literally made him sick. Now, that part did scare me because uh, I'd never seen nothing like that. Um, but it was a good lesson that I learned uh, as far as, you know, not open the hot radiator. <laughs> that would do it for sure. But that 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 was probably the, I would have to say, probably the worst. And you told us that you did go on a lot of these trips with your dad and made a lot of these towns. What would you say was the longest trip that you made? Florida. Either to Pensacola or Panama City or... Uh, Mobile, Alabama was, was another long trip we'd have to take. Um, sometimes we'd go to like Anniston, Alabama or Dothan or, or um, for, you know, Montgomery. We lived there for a couple of years uh, and traveled that area down in the south. Um, going to Lexington or Louisville, Kentucky for Memphis, that was a long trip. Um, I'd have to say the longest was probably going to Pensacola. And that was from Memphis, and that was a straight drive. That would be a pretty big trip right there for sure. And you, of course, would have picked up fairly quickly that a lot of turnover happens in wrestling promotions. Promoters would bring in fresh talent on a regular basis. This was well before contracts were issued in wrestling, so we're normally there for anywhere from a couple of weeks to maybe a year if you were lucky, and there were just a few people that usually worked in the office as well that would stay in the territory for a very long time. What was it like for you growing up seeing such a large amount of turnover and not really having necessarily steady faces that were always there to watch. It was one of those things where um, I knew, you know, like I said, I knew we're growing up in the business um, that people normally came in temporarily. Um, you know, there, there are certain mainstays that you had, uh, like Lawler, for instance, in Memphis, uh, Dundee, you know, he, he came and, and left, came and left, but pretty much he stayed in this area. Um, in Florida, there were, were, were certain, certain wrestlers and stuff in Alabama and, and even up in Knoxville area, um, like the Fullers and, and Welches and, and, and different ones. Those were the mainstays of that company or companies. Uh, Jimmy Golden was another one. Um, and, we worked, you know, my dad worked for his father down in Alabama. Uh, 
but it was just people that my dad had worked with, and we knew that they wasn't going to be there long. But back in the day, like like you said before the contracts, um, you knew all the different territories, and you always knew somebody somewhere. So when you're if you was here for a month or six months or a year or whatever it was, uh, when it got close for you to leave, you'd already made contacts with somebody else to go to go to a different territory and do it all over again. So you know. Oh, your I hope that answered the question. <laughs> it did. It did. Now, your brother, like we said, also got into the wrestling business, and he also became very well known as one of the nightmares. Was there ever any pressure put on you to get into the business yourself, or did they more or less leave it to what you wanted to do? Well, that is... It was never a pressure for me to get in the business. I was already in it. Um, I started selling pictures of my dad when I was four, maybe five years old, and they were eight by ten, you know, black and white, glossy pictures. Uh, sell them for like a quarter or fifty cents, whatever it was. And I knew I knew a little bit about money, so I knew how to make change if somebody handed me a dollar or five or whatever. Um, and as time went. I you know, started getting uh, programs and things to sell, um, and I did that. And then I started going out of town, helping with the wrestling ring, putting it up, uh, setting up chairs, sweeping the building after the show, working concessions, selling tickets, doing advertising with my dad, um, doing radio spots when I got old enough where my voice, you know, changed. Um, I do radio commercials and stuff like that, go out and paper the town, put out window cards and all kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, I, I never really had the gumption because I always worked behind the scenes. Um, you know, I refereed, uh, I wrestled one time just to see if I could do it, and I did, um, and I was happy with it. There wasn't a whole lot of people there, but I didn't care. I just wanted to see if I could do it. I've never been trained. Uh, I worked out with the guy. Uh, that I ended up wrestling that night about two weeks prior, and we did not call anything. We did not, you know, do anything. We just got in the ring and actually wrestled. And the night that I did wrestle, um, the referee came over and asked me who was going to win. And I said, you know, I said, well, he is. And he's like, well, what are y'all going to do? I said, hell, I don't know. The match is only 15 minutes. And he said, well, what's your finish? I'm like, I have no idea. I just, you know, whatever it is, this is like a shoot. You know, there is no uh, pre-planned things or we haven't talked about it or anything. And I said, we're going to get in the ring and wrestle. If the shoulders are down, count. If I don't want that to be the finish or or how he's going to win, I'll I'll raise my shoulder and kick out, you know. And uh, I said, you know, if I do something wrong or whatever, get on my rear end. I mean, you know, that's what this is. And I did, and the match went 14 minutes and about 20 seconds. Um, it wasn't a great match, but it was my first time. Um, I just wanted to see if I could do it. So I'd already done everything else outside of booking or owning my own company. Um, I helped my dad promote towns and, and did radio and helped him with advertising and, and doing programs and uh, concessions and selling tickets and taking tickets and, and everything else to, that there was to do. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that was that was the only thing I hadn't done, and I did it, 
and I was happy with it. And but I never was pressured to do it. One day I popped up and said, "Hey, Daddy, I, I want to see if I can do this." He's like, "All right." And he said, "I got a town coming up over here in Arkansas." He said, "I'll you know put you on the card and it's you know, there'll be like an opening match, fifteen minutes." I'm like, "That's fine." Anyway, we got out in the backyard and worked out in the ring for, I don't know, 30, 45 minutes. And the guy I was working with, he's an experienced veteran. Shit, buddy, he said, he's got it. I mean, you know, there's nothing wrong with what he's doing. He's, 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 he's got it. And then he was proud of me and that I done real good. And that's all I So uh, I was never actually pressured. <laughs> well, I'm glad you got in there and proved you could do that even more impressive that you didn't have formal training for it? Well, it was sort of natural. It was it was natural because I've been around it all my life, and I'd refereed for several years, and I paid attention when I was in the ring. So, I mean, I, I learned a lot from, from, from various people, you know, like you said earlier, talking about people coming in, staying three months or two weeks or whatever the case may be. Um, you know, Nick Bockwinkle, Luthez, um, God, there were so many that came through that I watched. So uh, I sort of, you, you see something long enough, you're able to understand it and figure out how to do it and how to do the reversals and, and different things. So, I mean, to me, it was a natural, natural thing to do, you know. Absolutely, and a lot of people don't realize refereeing gives people a perspective on things that, if you're solely doing Now, your dad was one of the better interviews in the Memphis area in Southeastern Territory. Uh, very, very good with an interview. I know you heard probably thousands upon thousands of interviews in your day, who would you say gave the best interviews? Um, the best one, I would have to say, would be Jerry Lawler or Jimmy Valiant. Depending on, on the situation and the angle or whatever it was they were working at the time, or they was trying to build the Monday night or whatever the case was, um, if they was a bad guy, I would have to say Tommy Rich. He done an excellent job. Eddie Gilbert done a great. Um, but if they was a good guy, I would have to say Lawler, Valiant, Dundee done done decent. He done a good job too. Uh, there's been so many that done fantastic interviews. Uh, Nick Bockwinkle. I mean, I mean, Luthez. I mean, the the list is is endless. I mean, you know, there has been some that I thought, you know absolutely stunk, but <laughs> that you want you wanted the best ones I could think of, I would have to say those. Now you obviously of course got in the ring as a referee and everything. You only had the one in ring match, but were you ever subject to any injuries when you were involved in the business? Yes, uh, Lawler and Sid Vicious <coughs> was having a match. Uh, it was at the Coliseum. The first referee got bumped, taken out, whatever. 
and then I was to run down and, you know, take over the match and, and get slide in the ring and, and do the refereeing. Um, and Sid, I don't know how much you know about wrestling. Um, the, the rings today are super thick padded. Um, like WWE and, and, and those rings, I mean, they've got inch, inch and a half, maybe two inches of thick foam padding up underneath the mat. Uh, back in the day, we had carpet. <laughs> we didn't have the foam padding. Uh, right there next to the rope, it was even less because most of the padding and stuff was more centered in the ring. And something happened. I don't remember what it was. Sid didn't like what it, him and Lawler, they were teaming up. They didn't like the way I was officiating or something, and, and I was getting on to them. And Sid looked at Jerry. Jerry looked at Sid, and Sid grabbed me and choke slammed me right next to the rope. Uh, I wasn't able to break my fall like I normally would do because I was like right next to the rope. If I was stuck my other arm out, I would have probably broke it. Um, so when he slammed me down, I actually he actually slammed me. And the side of the ring right there on the edge by the rope, there's not a whole lot of give or spring to it. And he did hurt my back. Um, and I rolled out of the ring. I, I landed, you know, flat, face down. Um, and, you know, it was one of them things where it, I, was, I, was, I was hurt. Um, but, I mean, I wasn't hurt so bad I couldn't move, don't get me wrong. But I, I knew my, my, my hip was hurt. Um, because I wasn't able to break my fall and land like I wanted to, or needed to, I should say. Um, and anyway, another referee come out, and he, they finished their match and stuff. I laid there for I don't know how long. Um, and that was the main event of the night. And at the end of the match, all the guys left. The crowd started leaving, and I'm still laying there. I haven't moved. And there was a few people still hanging around. Come on, referee, get up. It's all over. You can get up now. And I, I never moved. I never moved. So finally, you know, five or ten minutes or so goes by, and, and Lawler asked where I was at. And he said, he's still out there by the ring. He ain't moved. And I'm like, you know, I'm not moving. I'm, I'm, somebody's going to have to come get me. I'm not, I'm not getting up. So uh, they come out there and, and slowly arouse me. Of course, people are still standing there. They're still watching. And they honestly went from, all right, you're not hurt to, oh, my God, he really is hurt. He ain't moving. And I made them, I made their mind change by laying there um, because at first I didn't really think I was hurt. And, you know, before when it was all said and done, they they honestly thought I was hurt. And, I mean, I, I was. It hurt. It did hurt a little bit, but it wasn't like I was dying. Um, and once I got back in the back, Jerry asked me, he said, oh, my God, are you Okay. I'm like, yes, Jerry, I'm fine. Why? Of course, my, I had a bruise on my on my hip, but I was like, yeah, I'm fine. Why? And he's, oh my God, he said, I, I thought you was really hurt. I said, well, that that's a first. If I fooled you, I know damn well I fooled everybody out there in the crowd. <laughs> and I, I was, you know, that that was the one injury that I had. And then I had another injury where Jimmy Golden hit me with a baseball bat in Birmingham. Uh, matter of fact, it was 1980s. Six or seven, I can't remember. Eighty-six, because my daughter was just born, like a day or two before. Me and Daddy had to go down and do a deal with Ken and Danny and Robert Fuller or Ron Fuller, whichever it was, and Jimmy Golden. And Jimmy Golden hit me with a baseball bat, and the butt of the baseball bat caught my hip bone. 
And, I mean, it stung like all get out. But, I mean, I was okay, but it, it, it did sting, and I did have bruises. So those were the major injuries that I can never think of that actually happened where I got hurt, so to speak. Now, when you were growing up and actually when you were refereeing in the business, there was a lot of drinking involved in pro wrestling. The wrestlers would unwind after matches by drinking. They would go out to the bars, and it was just sort of the accepted social environment that wrestlers participated in back then. There were a lot of instances where uh, guys would go to the ring impaired and the opponent would have to cover for them. Did you see a lot of drinking affect wrestlers in the ring, or was that something that was more rare from the shows you were watching? Back back in the day, no. Um, back in the day, you didn't come to the town drunk. You didn't drink in the dressing rooms. Normally, the guys would get a six-pack or something, and, you know, there would be three or four of them in the car. Uh, back in the day, the good guys rode with the good guys. Bad guys rode with the bad guys. They didn't, you know, intermingle or anything. If they they have seen, they would get fired. Bars together. So from that standpoint, no, that was a normal thing to, you know, as soon as the matches and stuff were over and you got your shower and got your bag packed, you go get in the car and you get ready to either go to Nashville or, you know, on the way to Memphis or a spot show or wherever, back wherever to find a motel or where it was you stayed. Um, and th- that was a normal thing to stop and get a six-pack. Um, and that was, you know, back in the day, that was normal. Nowadays, as time progressed, you find people that are impaired in the in the ring. Um, they're not only drinking, but they're also doing other drugs and things that they shouldn't do, period. Um, but that is the lifestyle today. You know, you got it, – it, it, it's a different world today than it was back then. Um, and I don't really watch a whole lot today, and I want, you know I'll see a few things here and there, but I I, I don't I can't really comment on today because I'm not in the business today. Um, I'm just go on what I know from from the past and getting a, stopping and getting a six pack of beers. One of the things that has become hugely popular in pro wrestling in the last several years are the wrestling podcasts. Obviously, we are on one right now, but there have been many podcasts over the years on pro wrestling, both covering independent wrestling, covering the history of wrestling. A lot of people that are in the business host podcasts, be it present or past wrestlers. Do you listen to a lot of the wrestling podcasts that talk about the wrestling that you may have enjoyed or participated in? Um, well, matter of fact, I'm I'm one of those people. <laughs> I do a podcast too. <laughs> but uh yeah, there's Dutchman's Hells that I watch. Uh, occasionally I watch Jeff Jarrett's uh with him and uh Connor or whatever man's name, Conrad. 
Conrad Thompson. Um, and I watched the one with, like, mainly with Dutch, because um, I, I know I've known Dutch for God forever. Uh, of course, I know Jeff Jarrett too, but that's a different, different bird of a different color. Um, and it's one of them things where if I see something like on YouTube or something, I'm just, you know, watching videos or whatever, uh, and something pops up, if it, if the title of it strikes my interest, I may watch it. Um, I've watched some Billy Robinson podcasts and stuff, you know, people doing, you know, features and, and stories on him. Um, I've watched stuff about Luthez and, and various wrestlers from the past. Um, don't remember the guy's names that, that do the podcast, uh, or even the title of them. Um, but mainly I watch Dutch's, um, uh, thing and occasionally if, Jeff Garrett's got one that, that strikes my interest or something. I, I may watch it, depending on the subject. Now, another thing that a lot of people that are appreciative of the history of the sport of professional wrestling have done the last several years is go to the annual Cauliflower Alley Club convention it used to be a closed convention and reunion for people within the business, but in the last 10 to 15 years, it was opened up to anyone that wants to go. So now a sort of a combination reunion and fan fest and seminars, live shows. There's a lot of uh, awards given out. There are a lot of things connected with the CAC, and of course, the CAC as an entity also has a benevolent fund set up, so they assist wrestlers that are struggling financially that need help, so it's become a fairly big organization. Do you ever involve yourself with the CAC at all? Uh, no, um, I have not. Um, I have went to a couple that were done in Mobile with my dad uh, on occasion, um, but I've never been to the Cauliflower Club out in, in Vegas or wherever it's at. Um, and, I mean, I, we've got the Memphis Wrestling Hall of Fame stuff here, and, you know, Randy Hills, I think, takes care of that, or somebody does. I'm not real sure. But I've never actually... Outside of the, the two or three times I went to Mobile, and I think there was one time I went to Nashville or somewhere with Daddy to uh, another one. It was just a man's house, um, and it wasn't no seminars or anything like that. But it was interesting to see a lot of the old people that I grew up with, um, like Darlene Dagmar, um, God Cora Combs. I mean, a lot, a lot of the old timers that are that are you know. Some, most of them are gone now, um, but it was people that remembered me when I was a little little boy, um, and you know, like May Young, a perfect example. Um, and I didn't know May up until I went to the reunion down at Mobile, and it was very nice to meet her. Great lady. Um, I had met her one time. Um, in Memphis when Stasiak was doing the, the thing on, in, in Memphis and she played his mom or something. Um, very tough lady, definitely 100% wrestler. Um, 
but like Dennis Hall and, and, and Bearcat Brown, I mean, all the old old guys that I grew up with, um, it was great to see them. But um, unfortunately, I'm not, I'm not, they're not really around anymore. So it's hard for me to say, yeah, I want to go to, you know, Cauliflower Club out in Vegas or wherever because uh, most of the people that I know are gone. So, you know, and as far as having the newer guys, and just anybody can go. I don't. I don't agree with that because that wasn't the way I was brought up. Fair enough. Now, over the last several years, there's been confusion in dressing rooms I've been in because, besides your father, there was also a wrestler up here in our area, the Pacific Northwest by the name of Buddy Wayne, and a lot of times people will confuse the two. I've had to correct a lot of wrestlers that were confused on the subject. Do you run into a lot of people that get your father confused with the Buddy Wayne from up here? Not not down here. Now, there have been people that are like on Facebook or whatever and um, or maybe YouTube or, or, you know, whatever, or TikTok or whatever it messaged me. And they will ask me if it is the same Buddy Wayne that was like Pacific Northwest. I'm like, no, that wasn't my dad. That My dad was, you know, in the south in Memphis area. They well, ain't that the same guy? I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> and um, I, never, I never got to meet, you know, the other, the other guy. But, however, I did find it rather iconic. Um, if you've ever watched any of my dad's footage with him having either the red tights on or black tights, black boots, and he had either white and red or black and red socks, uh, at, you know, up on the, right above his boots. Um, and if you watched one of the WWE matches, or WWF, I think it was at the time, um, Buddy, the Pacific Northwest Buddy, dressed just like my dad. And to me, I thought that was the best compliment anybody could ever give. Um, because daddy, daddy wore pretty much the same outfit all, all the time. He either had black tights on or red tights. And he, I never saw him wear leggings or, or anything like that or elbow pads or knee pads or, or none of that kind of stuff. And I happened to run across one of the WWF or WWE, whichever it is. Um, matches with you know the Buddy Wayne from Pacific, and he he he. At first, I thought it was my dad. I'm like, what is he doing there? And I, the closer I looked, and then they got a tight shot on his face. I'm like, hey, let me. Why well, that guy dressed like Daddy? You know? But it was, yeah. It's it's real easy because the other Buddy from Pacific, he is known worldwide, I mean, quite naturally because of the WWE or, or whatever when he was on TV. Um, and a lot of people think, you know, when I say something about Buddy Wayne, that's one of the people they think about, especially if they're, you know, from that area or whatever. And <laughs> I get a, I get a tickle out of it because that wasn't my dad. <laughs> and then I, I tell them who he was, and they're like, okay, well, I don't know who that is. I'm like, yeah, well, I don't expect you to. You're not from here. So... <laughs> Now, recently, 
there was a motion picture released on the Von Erich family called the Iron Claw. A lot Correct. of people were very excited for this. It had been in the works for many, many years before it finally saw theaters. A lot of people uh, were disappointed because it was not factually accurate. It was not a documentary per se, which a lot of people seem to expect. A lot of people went into it knowing it would not be historically accurate in a lot of places, but enjoyed it as a movie that focused on pro wrestling. Did you get a chance to see the film and form an opinion on it? I have not seen the uh, film, matter of fact. Um, I am aware of who the Von Bon Erics are. Uh, they were extremely, extremely popular, um, and they had their own territory and, and Fritz and, and whole nine yards. Uh, the main thing that I've seen, as far as it not being historically correct, uh, was I think it was Kevin or somebody that they didn't even mention in, in the film. I think it was Kevin. I'm, it may have been somebody else I'm, I'm thinking about, but I want to say Kevin. Chris, that's who it was, Chris. Uh, yeah, because Kevin, he, he, he's on the cover of the shot. Uh, but anyway, um, you know, to me, to leave him out, even if he wasn't in the business or only wrestled for a short time or whatever the case was, um, it, it, I've, I've heard a lot of great reviews about it uh, you know, overall. Um, and, and everybody has their own opinion, and everybody's going to critique what they see and what they think, and because there's a lot of different versions out there that have different versions. I mean, that that's it depends on what you read, and a lot of stuff that you read on the Internet, you know, you can't honestly believe everything um, because a lot of it is inaccurate. So when they do a movie or a film or a documentary or whatever, um, it's one of them things where they're they're making it entertaining. They're trying to, to capture your imagination, and, and same thing no matter if it's an action movie or a thriller movie or a murder movie or whatever it may be. Um, that's part of putting a film together. I mean, that's you know you, you can't always be a hundred absolutely hundred percent correct in, in in every fact. So you have to take it with a, a grain of salt and just you know take it. Everybody takes everything different. So, you know, it depends on how you look at it. Now, over the last 25 years, we've seen a flood of wrestling books hit the market. Ever since Mick Foley made the New York Times best-selling list, people were putting books out, whether it was historically uh, documenting wrestling or autobiographies or biographies or discussing promotions, whatever the case may be. We've seen a lot out there. Has anyone ever approached you on having a book made about your family? No. Um, Daddy had talked about it before he passed, um, about doing a book, but he never did really start on it or anything. Um, nobody's ever approached me about it. If they did, I would have to tell them no. 
um, because being in the business like I was, I don't, I, I can't remember all of the stories. Um, and mine would be hit and miss here and there, and I, I wouldn't want to put something like that out unless I had absolute facts where um, I could remember everything. I'll, just as someone that has worked in the business and has enjoyed the business, have you a favorite book that you've read that dealt with professional wrestling? Um, well, I've read three, matter of fact. Well, actually, four or five, but um, Jerry Jarrett put one out. I read it. It was very interesting. Um, it, a lot of things that I uh, remember that, you know, back in the day when he was here, um, that I, like I said, he mentioned in the book. Um, I've also read Randy Hill's book. Uh, that is a lot of history and stuff, and, and it's got some stories in it and different things. Uh, I remember a lot of that. Um, also, Dutch Mantel has put out two books. Um, it's all about doing the third one. I wish he would because I, I would definitely get it. Um, and his stories were from like Puerto Rico and Memphis and and all over the place. Um, and he even talked about WWE or WWF, whatever it was when he was up there, uh, Zeb Calder or whatever it was. Um, and I mean, they're they're both great great books. Uh, Randy's book's good, um, and the one Jerry Jarrett put out was good. Um, I have not read. I, I know Laura put one out, but I haven't read it yet. Um, and there's been several other guys that I know that put out books, but I haven't. I haven't tried to tried to get them to read them yet. Now, you talked a little bit earlier about. Uh, having refereed and done some of the promotions with your dad and so forth and so on. One of the things that your dad did that a lot of fans may not realize was he promoted professional wrestling as well. Did you learn a lot on the promotional end of things from your dad, or was that something that you had to learn from someone else that had experience in that? Um, I learned from several different people, uh, mainly my dad. Um, you know, like I said, we would sit there, you know, before computers and stuff came out, and he would sit there at the table, and he would have uh, pictures of the guys. He'd, he'd make a photocopy or whatever at the TV station, and he would print off a whole stack of, them, of, of various guys. And then he had a typewriter and or typeset or whatever it's called. It's like a typewriter, but it's not a typewriter. Um, and he would sit there and do it, and then he would take and either tape or paste it on a piece of paper. And he'd put, you know, a picture, you know, beside it or whatever, and he'd have, like, a window card. And then he would take that to a printer and have it printed, and he'd have 100 printed or 50 or 200 or whatever, whatever it was the town was he was running. And then we'd take, take the window cards when they got ready, and we would go to the town and, and what they call paper in the town, uh, and put them in everywhere we could think of, uh, or anybody that would let us, I should say. Uh, so yeah, I mean, that, that was interesting, and I learned a lot about, you know, the behind the, the scene things, like how, how to do a rational report, um, the advertising, quite naturally, the radio spots, and, and all the different things. 
um, also, you know, would sit there at the table and watch him do a wrestling report. And it was interesting to see how he figured out how to pay everybody the state taxes back in the day, the athletic tax and, and all the different things in the ring and everything else that, that, that came out, including the advertising, um, before he, you know, got his money or whatever it was, his booking fee that he had to send to the office or, you know, whatever, whatever it was, it, it was interesting. So I did learn a lot from him and also talked to Jerry Jarrett a time or two and asked him questions. Um, it was very, very knowledgeable, uh, more than willing to try to help me any way he could. And I thought the world of Jerry, I really did. But I learned the majority of everything from my dad, and my dad learned a lot of that from Nick Gullis and Roy Welch back in the day, along with Jerry Jarrett. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it was knowledge that was passed down to my dad, and I, I sort of absorbed all of it. So, yeah, I mean, I'd have I'd, overall, I would say my dad is the one that taught me. Well, we have come down to the last few minutes of the show today, and I want to make sure that you have ample time. If there's anything at all you want to say to the fans, and if you want to plug and promote anything at all, social media, your podcast, books, anything at all, floor is all yours. Well, there's not really a whole lot. Like I said, I do a little podcast on Thursday nights on Facebook at 7 o'clock. It's called Wayne's World. Uh, The way you can find it, is the search Wayne Wayne's World or Greg Wayne on Facebook. Uh, I'm also on Twitter and Twitch and other other ones, but I'm gonna get rid of those. The only one I'm gonna keep will be Facebook. It is me, uh, Greg Wayne, and it has the lion looking up. Um, so that way you know which one you're you're looking for. If you see the lion, that's me. So you just click on it and follow me. Um, and it's best best thing to do is follow the Wayne's World page. Um, that way when I do do a broadcast or whatever on my podcast, you can make comments and stuff and I get them if you're on the Wayne's World page. If you're watching the Greg Wayne page, the broadcast on both, if you're watching the Greg Wayne page, I cannot see the comments. So, you know, I, I invite anybody and everybody in all questions. Um, if for some reason you can't and you have a question you'd like to ask. Uh, go to Greg Wayne One, the number one, at hotmail.com. That's my email. Uh, again, it's Greg Wayne One at hotmail.com. And send your questions, send your, you know, compliments, whatever it is you may want to know. I'll do what I can to find out and I'll get back with you. Uh, hope everybody enjoys the podcast that I do do. Uh, like I said, and I'm not going to get into YouTube and all the other stuff that I've got, but the Facebook page is Greg Wayne, and it's got the line looking up once again. And go to the Wayne's World page and watch from there, and I'll be able to see all your comments when you make them. And I do appreciate it. Thank you very much. Greg Wayne, it was an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us greatly. Hopefully we'll do this again sometime, and best of luck on the podcast. Hopefully more and more people listen every week. Yes, sir. This this week, uh, this coming uh, next week, next Thursday, I am doing the second part on Jimmy Hart. Uh, majority of what I normally do 
is wrestlers that are past. However, I do occasionally still do somebody that's alive. <laughs> so we'll be doing part two on Jimmy Hart because it is an uh, ungodly amount of pictures and video and all kind of stuff. So, <laughs> But I hope, I hope everybody out there joins. And, and once again, I do appreciate everybody tuning in and listening to what little bit of chatter I've got. <laughs> and I want to thank you very much for inviting me. Definitely a pleasure to have you here. You're welcome back anytime. Fans, if you have not, get on the YouTube. Check out both Greg's father and brother. They were very, very good. And you can probably find Greg refereeing some matches if you look up some of the old Memphis footage online. So do that. Fantastic wrestling family. So make sure you educate yourself if you have not. We will be back with you Sunday afternoon. We have out of Alaska Taekwondo Pro with us. And one week from today, we have wrestling historian Tom Burke on the show. So make sure you have plans to be with us. Go out there and support your local wrestling wherever it may be near you. And we'll talk to you soon. All right. Thank you very much. <laughs>